Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, you're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB or streaming via the podcast or on the website. This is Out of the Box. It's the place where I, Mia Hull, each week spend an hour walking through someone's life and stopping to listen to some of the songs that have soundtracked the big moments. Before I go any further, I'd like to acknowledge that today my guest and I are recording from so-called Redfern, which is on unceded land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I want to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today we're telling an 80-year love story on Out of the Box. It's visually vibrant and totally iconic. It's Ken Doan's love affair with Sydney Harbour. Ken Doan is my guest on the show today, and he's a true storyteller. He talks just like he paints. For the next hour, we'll walk through his colourful life and stop to look at some of the big moments. There are so many. Ken is 83 years old, and across his life working in advertising and as a full-time practising artist, he's worked on so many big projects that you've absolutely seen before. You might know him through UNICEF or through the art he did for the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Olympics, or maybe you visited his gallery on the rocks. We have so much to talk about on the show today, so let's jump straight in. Ken Doan, thank you so much for joining me. I'm very pleased to be here. <laughs> I think when most people think of Ken Doan, the first thing they think of is Sydney Harbour. Do you remember the first time you saw it? I do. Um, I, used to, I, I used to live in Belmore when there were cows and and fields around there, but my grandparents on my dad's side lived in Fairy Bower in Manly. So to get to Manly, it was such a wonderful experience. Uh, you came by train, the train stopped at Central in those days. So I would rush to get upstairs in the double-decker bus on the front seat if I possibly could near the window to get that first glimpse of the harbour <laughs> and how exciting it was. Mm. Um, it never fails to thrill me, but certainly in those days to see that little sparkling bit of a uh, bit of blue you could see as you went down Pitt Street and then suddenly to get on the big manly ferry, I mm. mean, big ferry in those days. So I love to get on the ferry. I love to then sit on the back of the ferry so I could look down and see that incredible like a lime ice cream soda look of all of the uh, all of the water being churned up and then you were off on the trip 7 mm. miles do you still get that feeling when you look at it now well you know i've been on the ferry before <laughs> but every time i look I, I live on sydney harbour so i'm very very fortunate to, to I, I swam this morning in the harbour mm. it's quite cold mm. um so no it's always thrilling sydney harbour um in all its moods whether it's gray and soft and slightly mauve or on those bright searing hot summer days where that water is so sparkling you could hardly look at her. Mm -hmm. 
You're such an artist, Ken. I love the way that you talk about the things you see. You said your life started in Belmore, but you spent a lot of your boyhood in McLean. Yeah, look, my dad was... I didn't meet my father till I was five. Like a lot of... I was born in 1940, start of the war. My dad was a bomber pilot uh, in England for five years. Then he came back. And then we moved to a little country town on the Clarence River called McLean. Although every time I say the word the Clarence River, I should preface it by saying the mighty Clarence River. (laughs) We were taught as kids to always call it the mighty Clarence, and it was. It's a fabulous, fabulous river. So my boyhood was fishing before school, fishing after school, no homework, um, no shoes to school. It was a kind of idyllic Huckleberry Finn kind of boyhood, (laughs) which I treasure greatly. And uh, look, you know, we lived there from the age of, well, I was five to ten. So those years in a young boy's life, I think, are very, very formative and makes you, you know, the kind of person you are. Mm. And did you have siblings when you were growing up? No, I'm an only child, which meant that I spent a lot of t- I had a lot of mates. But of course, mm. if you're an only child, you have to maybe look inside your head a bit more, mm. and um, that's when I guess I was drawing all the time. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I feel like sometimes if I have artists on the show who grew up without siblings or they grew up in more regional areas, they're kind of forced to create worlds when they're little. Yeah, look, all all kids draw when yeah. they're young. They mm. they they. I mean, every single person has been an artist at some stage. It's only when you get you know around ten or eleven you think that uh, if I'm going to draw an arm, it should come out of the shoulder. Whereas when you're five, it can come out of the top of the head. And so I'm not nearly as good as a five year old. That <laughs> really would be one of my great great ambitions still left. (laughs) You started to take art more seriously when you were 14. You went to art school at that time. Can you tell me about that choice? Look, I passed the intermediate certificate, which is like year 10, and I was thrilled to be able to be accepted in it was called East Sydney Tech in those days, the National Art School now. I think I was the youngest that went there. And for me, it was just fabulous. I, w- I mean, I was reasonably good at school. I'd passed the intermediate at probably, you know, a year before normal kids did. Um, and so then to have the prospect of going to art school where you were painting and drawing and colouring in and learning all of these things was, uh, was, was thrilling. Look, it was pretty... What would be the words? Pretty conservative in those days. We didn't uh, get up to too much trouble. I'm not suggesting that the current students do, but it's a you know it's a it was a long time ago. Uh, we didn't complain too much about it. We, you know, I was very young. I called the teachers, you know, Mister This or Mister mm. That. Um, and but when you talk was, about it being conservative, do you think that the art they were teaching you was restricted in a way as well? No, look, uh, art schools, there's certain basic... Mm. The first thing that you should they should tell you, which they don't, they should say, there are no rules. There are no rules 
You can paint with Vegemite if you like, you know. Nowadays, art can be found in many more areas. In the old time, in my time, or the early part of it, it was a more kind of traditional track that they expected you to go on, that you would eventually graduate and then you would, you know, work towards your first exhibitions and stuff like that. Well, I left before the end of the course because I was offered a really good job, not so far away from this studio, actually, uh, in an old classic studio. Lloyd Rees used to work there, and they paid me, I think it was £14 a week. I don't know what the equivalent is this, but, you know, mm. that was a serious serious amount of money anyway I was only in that job for two weeks uh, and then a, a guy still a friend of mine offered me the unbelievable sum of 28 pounds a week like <laughs> double the salary but the real clincher he said that uh, I could paint my office whatever color I wanted <laughs> and I painted it purple because it's kind of you know 1959 purple. Good. What kind of purple are we good, talking Well, it's a good purple because purples are very difficult. It can go all kinds of ways. And look, when you're on that particular subject, um, Graham Bryce, who was married to Quentin Bryce, the Governor General, at one point in time, he had the problem of doing the logo for Queensland. And he was kind enough to call me and say, what purple do I... Oh, no, what maroon? Mm. What maroon? Maroon is a very difficult colour too because it can go to pink or it can go to blue. So I thought about it for a while, what the, what the maroon would be, and the only thing I could come up would be it would be a maroon that Wally Lewis liked. Now, Wally Lewis, he was a great Queensland footballer. Mm. And so, you know, <laughs> his opinion would have counted much more than mine. <laughs> so, where were we? Back to art school. Yeah, back to art school. But um, you talk about leaving art school. And in the last five minutes, you've talked about your life on Sydney Harbour and being asked to design the maroon logo for... Queensland, you've obviously had a big and storied life, which we're going to talk about all the way up until one o'clock today. But yeah, before we get into your life just after art school, Ken, I'd love to jump into a song by James Morrison. Can you tell me why you picked this one? Well, James was kind enough to put out an album called Postcards from Down Under because he had written uh, seven songs to seven of my paintings. And can you imagine what a thrill it is to go into a studio to listen to what a musician of his standing, his world standing, uh, thinks about your work and how it inspires him? And yeah, Sydney by Night, great song. Wait, so what comes first, the paintings or the The songs? paintings came first. Yeah. Sydney by Night was just fabulous. Chosen by Ken Doan on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. It's James Morrison and Sydney by Night.
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAV, or if you're streaming via the podcast or on the website, fbiradio.com. This is Out of the Box. I'm Mia Hull. I'm joined by Ken Doan, the chooser of that song, Sydney by Night by James Morrison. And before we played it, we were talking about a job that you had with a friend who allowed you to paint your room purple. Mm. What was that job? Well, I was a young art director. I had gone from the studio, which was called Smith and Julius, a classic old kind of commercial art studio, to uh, an up-and-coming and bright advertising agency and suddenly with my own room and you could call yourself an art director. So it was the start of that particular journey of the advertising business that I was in for quite a while and I enjoyed it. Mm, I've actually always wondered how you kind of ended up in advertising because you arrive at a full-time practicing artist at age 40 but there's a big chunk of you being a really successful advertising mogul before then. I want to walk through some of those moments for you. One of them was starting a business called Visual Communication. Sure. Uh, Tell me about that. Visual Communication, a good mate, still a mate, Bob Mitchell and I started that business in Rose Street. Rose Street was as part of Rose Street still left. It goes from Pitt Street, Castle Ray Street. But in those days, it was the really hot, fashionable little street. It's in coffee mm. shops and little jewellery shops and and little fashion boutiques. You know, it, it really was the centre of that kind of life in Sydney. Beside the Australia Hotel, I have to remember, the pubs closed at six, six o'clock. So, yeah, we had a little studio and we sold, we offered our services to sell concept and design to various clients. Mm. Quite a regular thing now, but not so much then. Most agencies had their creative people within, so we chose or tried to be without. And we had some really good clients um, I remember we had uh, we had 2GB as a client for a while. It's well before your time, but there was a wonderful broadcaster called Eric Bohm. And, you know, I used to have to go up there and present copy and ideas to Eric. I mean, it's good character-building mm-hmm. stuff. In fact, over the years, I've done work for the ABC and for Channel 9, slightly different ways of going about it, but working through the media... As you well know, it's very exciting. I'm interested in what it means to kind of bring your creativity to that space as opposed to art when you're kind of using your practice to, I guess, essentially sell things to people. What does that feel like or how does that shape the way that you create? It's an interesting concept, isn't it, when you say to sell Mm. things to people. Mm. Well, that's exactly what artists do too. It's just a different understanding of the client. Like when I work, let's say, for uh, Channel 9, which which you're really working for Kerry Packer. And so I did the first ads for World Series cricket when they came out. So often in a case like that you have to work very fast there's a discipline a rate uh, something is happening you need to advertise it and 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 get the biggest audience possible mm. on the other side i had for instance um and i'm not necessarily that private now but benson and hedges had as an account flogging cigarettes the interesting thing about it is that 
you could do almost anything in those days. For instance, we sponsored, we, very grand, um, <laughs> they sponsored War and Peace, first opera at the Opera House. They sponsored the Daly Wilson Big Band. Uh, we were considering bringing steeplechasing up from Melbourne so that we could make a film about it. In other words, in those days, if you wanted to reach a lot of people, you need a 60-second commercial on Channel 9 on Sunday night, and essentially then you were talking to mm. Australia. So all of those big brands uh, were involved with that. Your work in advertising has brought you to London and New York as well. Those are pretty big moments for you. Can you kind of walk me through some of them? Yeah, like most young Australians, when they first go overseas, they go to England, they go to Europe. Well, I went to Japan uh, with my mate Bob. I was very interested in uh, uh, traditional Japanese Japan, uh, design and contemporary Japanese design. Very, very exciting. Also, I like girls with long, straight, dark hair. So then I went to New York and I went a I went uh, Sydney, Tahiti, Acapulco, Acapulco, Mexico City, and then up to Los Angeles and San Francisco, and I got freelance work there. I took a bus all the way across America. So that eventually led me to New York. I worked there briefly. I, they couldn't get a green card from me, so... Uh, they wanted to know whether I'd go to the London office. In the end, I, I did. I went to the London office. I had fantastic accounts to work on. I worked with Dylan Thomas's son, Llewellyn, for a long time. He and I did some wonderful things. And then I worked with Bill Oddie and Tim Brooke Taylor, who went on to become the goodies. And we won the award, 1969, Best Cinema Commercials in the world. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty damn good. You know, mm. we were absolutely thrilled about that. So advertising, if you have nice clients and interesting accounts, like mm. I had the Bacardi account, so I convinced them we should shoot it underwater in the Caribbean. Uh, it was a deal with Coke, and I needed, I'd done the layouts of a couple of people diving down to get uh, the Bacardi bottle and, and the Coke bottle with little fish swimming around it. Looked great. They said, can you do it? I said, I'm Australian. Of course I can do it. <laughs> well, I had to, with my wife, we had to go and learn to dive in a hotel pool in Regent's Park in London, which led us to go to, to the Caribbean, to Nassau, mm. To eventually find a coral head that was within a meter of the surface, because you need the light coming through, you need to get a tin of sardines, put it behind the coral head, stab it with a knife, so there's little bits of oil going up uh, yeah. in the water, which will attract the fish. Yeah, you know the interesting thing about that, you could do that ad in a in a garage in Redfern. Mm. <laughs> you don't need... I was very lucky to be at before computers yeah. at the end of that time where if you wanted to create something, you had to you had to make it happen. Does that ad still exist? I'd love to see that. Oh, yeah, it still exists. It's, yeah. a, it's in my book. 
Yeah, no, it still exists, and it was a fabulous experience. And the Bacardi family uh, lived in Bermuda in those days in a house fairly pretentiously called Bacardi on the Rocks, and the deal was uh, I had to show them the pictures, and if they liked them, they would run them. They liked them very much, and it led to the next five years, every year, I would go somewhere in the world to make a Bacardi commercial. Ken, that's such an illustrious career in advertising. How old were you at the time? I was uh, late 20s. That's so impressive. And it's so impressive. (laughs) I mean, it's just what you do. A problem comes along and you find a solution to it. Mm. But then you've got to be able to do it. You can't go back, like in the Bacardi exercise, you can't go back to London and say, oh, we, we, we couldn't get it right. Nowadays, I think it's changed a bit where with communicate with uh, computers, you can change and make all the things. Yeah. But even so, you need a good essential idea. Mass communication, it's very complicated now because there's so many different audiences that you can try and reach different from my time. I want to talk about a song you've chosen. It's by Ray Charles. Can you tell me why you picked this one? Look, I've met Ray Charles. He is absolutely one of my heroes. And he can sing anything. You know, he can sing a shopping list or or a phone book and bring something to it. And this particular song, I just I just love it. That before we met those what a good old day. Why must you hurt me so? I can't stand it no more. And I'm really trying. Girl, I just can't control these tears from my eyes. Yes, I'm the jealous kind. The jealous kind. It was Ray Charles on FBI Radio 94.5. You're listening to Out of the Box. I am joined by Ken Doan, the chooser of that song. And just before we played it, you talked about learning to dive in a pool with your wife, Judy. I want to talk about Judy. You've been together for a long time. How many years is it? I think it's now coming up to 380 years. No, we've been (laughs) married for... uh, I don't know, 58 years, something like that. So, yeah, it's been a, a collaboration mm. and I'm very proud of the fact that we're still still married. Lots of uh, friends have, you know, gone on to different kinds of relationships. You can never plan that. It's, it's, it's you know, there are always ups and downs in a, in, a, in a particularly long relationship, but we're very fortunate and very lucky that we have two wonderful kids that we work very, very closely with and three fantastic grandchildren and another one on the way, but all grandparents will say that. <laughs> what do you think is the secret to a 58-year marriage? Uh, they often say the secret to long marriage is a short memory. Um, <laughs> I, I look, I don't know. I mean, obviously there are lots of things that Judy and I share in in a visual thing. In fact, like this morning was a good example. After we'd been for a swim, I came up, I walked into the studio and there's a painting there that um, I, I don't even need to say anything to Judy. I, I just nodded for her to come in and have a look at it. And I can see that she wasn't 100%. And look, in truth, I wasn't 100% happy with it. So 
I painted over it. I mean, I, uh, I'm getting I'm getting much better at editing. Much less work is coming out, but it's better. Mm. Should be better, you know. I'm 83. You've got to have learnt something along the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'd be interested to see how your practice has changed over time and what you've learned. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you met Judy? I do, as a matter of fact. Um, it was in a bar. It was in Rose Street, the top of Rose Street uh, in those days. There was a hotel opposite of the Carlton, I think, and it had a it had a, a bar downstairs. It was called the Jet Bar. It was called the Jet Bar because it had model aeroplanes hanging from the ceiling and, more importantly, it had clocks showing you the time in other parts of the world. Mm. So as a young man, it was pretty impressive to say to some girl, listen, do you realise it's quarter past nine in Tokyo? <laughs> it was always a good opening line. <laughs> so yeah, Judy was there with a couple of friends and uh, I I took her and a friend, it was like a job lot, you know, to see Breakfast at Tiffany's and um, that that's why that song's important. Well, yeah, let's play that song now. It's called Moon River, an ode to Judy. <laughs> Do you have anything else you'd like to say about it? Well, look, it is a wonderful song and and uh, and covered by so many different people. But I guess because we first heard it in, in Breakfast at Tiffany's on our first date, and look, as a, an addition to that, I mean... The, we had our honeymoon in Paris. Uh, we were walking around the streets in Paris and Audrey Hepburn was there making a film. Uh, we saw her, obviously, from a distance. And then if you jump ahead about, I don't know, 15 years, uh, I'm dancing with Audrey Hepburn because she'd been very much involved in UNICEF for many, many years and so did I. Look, she's a lovely... Lo- oh, she was mm-hmm. a lovely, lovely woman, but so totally addicted to cigarettes that when she'd finish a speech her boyfriend would be waiting at the beside the lectern with a with a lighted cigarette not good but pretty girl and lovely from the breakfast at tiffany's soundtrack this is moon river chosen by ken doan the same And waiting round the bend, my huckleberry friend, River and me. On FBI Radio 94.5, you are listening to Out of the Box. I'm Mia Hull. I'm sitting down with artist Ken Doan. Who chose that song? It was a cut from the Breakfast at Tiffany's soundtrack. It was called Moon River, an ode to Ken's partner, Judy. And you talked about dancing with Audrey Hepburn when we were introducing that song. You met Audrey through your work as a UNICEF ambassador. How did you first come to cross paths with UNICEF? Well, I was asked to do the outside of the Australian Pavilion at Expo 88 by Ken Woolley. Ken designed the whole building and then asked me whether I would design the outside. So we made this big Australia word and I painted each letter in a different form 
to represent the turtle feeling of Australia. And look, it it it, it certainly struck a chord. Anyway, a couple of blokes uh, came to see me and they said, will you do the outside of the UNICEF pavilion? Well, of course, I said yes, because I, like everybody, I knew something about UNICEF without having involved. I knew that they were doing good things. And so it was uh, a, 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 an honour and a pleasure to do it. Mm. So, yeah, that's where it first, first started. And you said that was in 88. You've been 88. involved with them ever since. Yeah. It always puts things into perspective. You know, we've been into refugee camps, let's say, in Africa. And you see how UNICEF can bring a structure to happen to get the tents up, get the, the water flowing, you know, get the sanitary things working out. And, of course, the people are often so grateful for it. I remember once we were walking through a refugee camp um, in Zimbabwe, I think, uh, and people were offering us food. You know, they've got bugger all, mm. and yet they're offering you something. So, yeah, we've done that into Vietnam, uh, done trips there. Often I think, like I'm an, I'm an old ambassador now, and I think probably the best thing I can do is to give some encouragement to the younger people who work within the UNICEF structure. I think it's very tempting to think the minute you start with UNICEF, you're going to save the world, you know, I'm going to save the world and stop you know, poverty by, you know, sometime late tomorrow afternoon. Mm. It's much, much more complicated than that and uh, rewarding but sometimes a bit dispiriting because you just never feel that you're doing enough. You've worked with UNICEF as an artist as well. Yeah. Tell me about some of those moments. Uh, well, I've done a few drawings in various places in Vietnam. Uh, I've been down into the tunnels in Vietnam, tunnels in Kochi. We made a bit of a documentary there. Quite, I mean, I'm a bit claustrophobic, so to be in a tunnel where you've got a cameraman in front of you and someone behind him and then a couple of people behind you and you're in this tiny little narrow space is a bit uh, a bit confronting, but you have to do it. Mm. What's the next song you've chosen? Uh, what could it be? Starry, Starry Night. Yeah. Let's play that. Is there a reason that you wanted to play it on Out of the Box today? I just think it's a wonderful song. And, of course, it's, you know, very important to think about Vincent van Gogh and to find, you know, Don McLean weaving his kind of magic, popular words, wide audience stuff, paintings hung in empty halls, you know. It's a lovely, lovely song. Chosen by Ken Doan, this is Don McLean on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. The song is called Vincent, Starry Starry Night. Now I understand What you tried to say to me And how you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen, they did not know how Perhaps they'll listen now For they could not love you 
Vincent, Starry Starry Night. It was Don McLean on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I have the pleasure of sitting down with artist Ken Doan. And we haven't really talked about your art much yet, Ken. We've spoken about your love with Sydney, your love with Judy and your illustrious career in advertising. But let's chat turning points because you kind of started to become a full-time practising artist age 40, which I think is an age that might surprise people when they look at your practice. What caused that shift for you? It's not not just one thing, but there's a couple of things. I think one, seeing my first Matisse exhibition in London in a very cold, grey, wet Sunday afternoon going into a gallery in the left bank where it was a big Matisse exhibition and suddenly his understanding of colour kind of, you know, made me think that's, gosh, that's that's a track I'd love to do. But when I came back to Australia, I came back to become the creative director of J. Walter Thompson, took over Bryce Courtney's job. And I was, Judy and I, we were, we were holidaying in Vanuatu. And on the Sunday night, I was sitting on the beach talking to the late Peter Brock, lovely bloke, fantastic car driver. And he was talking to me about absolutely how passionate he was about motor racing. And I realised I was good at advertising and I quite liked it, but I wasn't passionate about it, Mm. that I really wanted to be a painter. And if you're going to be a painter, you had to give it everything. So Monday morning, I went into the chairman's office and I resigned. So I was 35. So So hours later, hours (laughs) after that conversation. (laughs) Yeah. So I resigned. Yeah, that's right. So I had a house in Mossman, a big mortgage, one child. And so I needed to do some freelance work over the next few years to support us. And then on my, my, my 40th birthday in June, I had my first exhibition at the Holdsworth Gallery. I always wanted to show that I could have an exhibition at a big commercial gallery, and that was a big commercial gallery. Mm. But three months after that, I opened my own gallery, and I've had it ever since. And I'm not saying every artist should do it, but I see no difference from an artist owning a gallery than a chef owning a restaurant. Mm. Same principle. Mm. Not for everybody, but when it can be done, it's very satisfying because you can control it. You can show what you want to show, when you want to show it. Mm. And I've had my own gallery since you know, 1980, so I, I, I can do it. Mm. And I guess it's like a continuous exhibition. Since it is like a continuous then. exhibition, that's right. <laughs> I get, uh, you know... The girls who run the gallery, you know, they 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 keep me in check. <laughs> but uh, even but even so, look, it's it's my gallery. It's what I want to show. Yeah, of course. Can I often have artists on this show? And you know, radio is famously an audio medium, and I ask them to describe what their art looks like to someone who might not have seen it before. I feel like for you, that question's a bit redundant. I think your art is 
inherently intertwined with what it means to live in Australia. So instead, I kind of want to walk through some of the big moments for you. One of them is the 2000 Sydney Olympics. What was your involvement in that project? Well, I work with Rick Birch and quite a number of Australian artists were involved. He's a lovely bloke, Rick. Um, for me, it was a bit like painting for Australia. It's the closest I'll ever get to representing Australia in that sense of the word. And it showed, I think, that something like the Olympics, if it's done well, can in fact pull the entire country together. It wasn't just Sydney-centric. Everybody felt passionately about it. Um, so, yeah, I did quite a bit of... I did the, you know, the booklet for the opening and closing ceremony, the book that came in the little suitcase with all the little bits and pieces and when all the horses thundered in, the big banner that dropped out of the sky with G'day written on it. It was lovely. It was very Australian and... I have no doubt it's the best Olympics ever. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you'll help with the Brisbane one as well. Uh, listen, I think I'll be... Look, they, they got other people to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about something that is a little bit more Sydney-centric, which was vivid last year. Yeah. Your love affair with Sydney spans 80 years. What was it like to have your work projected across this city that means so much to you yeah look that i was really really thrilled and on on in a couple of days time i'm going to the opening of vivid there's none of my work there this year but uh, uh gil milavini who you know controls the entire thing was kind enough you know to come to me we were on it for about a year before mm. it actually happened and uh I, I kind of had an open hand to do whatever I wanted to do. And the customs house, such a wonderful position. Uh, and I wanted to tell a bit of a story about the feeling of Sydney and all, all its facets. And, of course, it was to James Morrison's music. Mm. So it was a lovely collaboration that we were able to do there. Mm. Yeah, Vivid's getting bigger and bigger, and uh, I know that I'm looking forward to seeing it this year. But a great, a great idea, a great, a great concept. Mm. Lots of people respond to it, and you can look at it on all kinds of levels. But it's just fun. I'm not used to collaborating with people, yeah. so it was quite good thing for me to do. It taught me a few lessons, and um, I enjoyed the collaboration. I'm not you know, rushing to do another one. <laughs> Although, for instance, Romance is Born and uh, what's those other people? Uh, Kip and Co. We've done collaborations with other brands, mm. but as far as the painting is concerned, I, I like nothing more than to walk into the studio with a new canvas and I've got some big new canvases in there waiting and starting. Starting's Great. Finishing's mm. hard. <laughs> I mean, we're looking back over your career as an artist now. We've talked about the Olympics. We've talked about Vivid. But I, I want to know from you, when you look at the things that you've made in your life, what are you the most proud of? I couldn't say there's one singular thing other than the fact that it... I, I like to make paintings that are beautiful. I don't like to make paintings that shock people. I think essentially we are unshockable. Once you've seen 
Rodney King being beaten in Los Angeles once you've seen once you've seen Donald Trump you've seen frightening things so I think the role of art for me should be more like poetry and obviously I like color I I am continually fascinated by the use of color and I hope that I'm I'm doing paintings that give people pleasure over time. I don't want to give everything away on the first... You don't get everything on the first date, you know. Mm. It's got to be a... If it lasts, if it's good, it'll be on your wall and you'll continue to get pleasure out of it. Mm. Earlier in the show, you know, you talked about coming into the studio from the beach this morning and Judy being there. Your studio is at your home and it yeah. does overlook the water. Yeah. Tell me about that. We, we never take it for granted. Mm. We have a beautiful, we have two beautiful houses. Um, the, the, the small one, which is down on the waterfront, we have breakfast there every day. It used to be my studio. My studio is now in the big house above it. We have a lovely garden. Uh, our day, my, we have to feed the magpies, the lorikeets and the kookaburras to start the day. Then I walk down into the studio just to have a look. Sometimes I'll stay there, but just have a look, know what I'm going. Then go down to the front house, the bottom house, which is called the cabin. We walk the beach. No, before then. I <laughs> feed about 60 fish that are waiting for me. I don't catch them. I don't want to catch them. Then I walk the beach. We clean the beach up. People are getting much, much better then come back to the house and have breakfast and then I'm in the studio by about 8.30, you know. Well, some days I'm not. Some days I'm not. You've got to feel it. You've got you to feel it. And some painters look at... And there are no rules. You go back to... Oh, there's no <laughs> rules. But some paint, some people like to paint what's in front of them. They sit there and they want to record that perfectly acceptable I want to paint what's in my head I want to paint the feeling of something not essentially what something looks like but again there are no rules so you can do whatever you like mm. anybody can be a painter e the easiest thing in the world is to cover a canvas or a bit of masonite or something with paint write your name on the bottom corner it's a painting mm. whether it's good or not depends on you and what people might bring to it i love the way that you talk about creating art that's beautiful and creating things that make people happy is that what the future holds for you as well ken well look i'm only 83 so who knows what the future would be in the sense that i'm probably halfway through my life i expect to live to at least 160 or maybe 170 mm. no i don't <laughs> um what holds for me is to get better at it, you know. That's the, that's the, to try not to repeat yourself, which is very tempting. And, you know, some of our greatest artists, John Olson, Sidney Nolan, Fred Williams, towards the end of their life, they tend to repeat themselves. And I repeat myself too. That's right. It's like singing the same song. You like a song, you like a way, you like to do it. 
and again, there are no rules if that's what you like doing. So every now and then, I try and force myself to do something different. Often I fail. <laughs> Ken, don't. It's been such a pleasure having you on Out of the Box today. Thank you for taking the time to join me. Thank you very much. You've chosen a song by Oscar Peterson to end the show with today. Why did this make it into your track list? Well, I like jazz and I like Oscar Peterson's jazz very much. I'm a, I'm a great admirer of musicians and the musicians, you know, they get their instant response to what they do. Whereas a painter, like if I make a painting, the dog barks twice. It's, no one else is there. Mm. And I don't even have a dog anymore. <laughs> <laughs> this is Love for Sale by Oscar Peterson on FBI Radio 94.5, chosen by my wonderful guest, the artist Ken Doan. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in today. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can do that on the programs page on fbiradio.com. I'll also put the full list of songs that Ken brought to the show and some links to the things we've spoken about as well. You can also listen back via the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I didn't you to go and visit the Ken Doan Gallery in the rocks whenever you get the chance and I want to say thank you to Tanya Ali who helped me produce this episode do stay tuned lunch is right around the corner